what does everybody in America want right now? Well, they want rights. They want recognition from the state. They want citizenship. So I want to sort of think about how that narrative is both productive, but also how it starts to do some interesting things in relation to a Native American narrative that maybe isn't so focused on individual rights or the individual liberal subject, which is really more focused on collective rights and treaty rights and how, how can those things sit together in productive kinds of ways. Native American studies has long been overlooked by academic institutions. But in recent years, pioneering scholars are taking a closer look at Native American culture, the complex relationship between sovereign indigenous tribes and the U.S. government, and the ways in which Native American studies defies our prior expectations. Indigenous people have played a crucial role in shaping modern culture, from art to athletics to automobiles, yet they have largely been excluded from the American narrative. In this episode of the Veritas Lab, we sit down with Professor Philip Deloria, the first tenured professor of Native American Studies at Harvard, to learn more about how Indigenous Studies contributes to the rise of ethnic studies more broadly and challenges our very understanding of the United States as a nation. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. Philip Deloria is a professor of history at Harvard University and one of the world's leading thinkers on American Indian studies. His research and teaching focus on the social, cultural, and political histories of the relations among American Indian peoples and the United States, as well as the comparative and connective histories of indigenous peoples in a global context. He's authored numerous books, including most recently, Becoming Mary Sully, Towards an American Indian Abstract, which describes American modernist art and its relationship with native peoples. Professor Deloria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so you've had a really interesting path to becoming a scholar of Native American history. I think I read that you actually started out as a musician and music teacher, and then you produced a documentary about the Lakota people, and then you made the transition into academia. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you kind of took the circuitous path to Native American studies? You know, I mean, my family roots are in Native American studies. My dad, um, you know, was a quite well-known and quite important, you know, intellectual figure in the late 60s through the mid-2000s, Vine Deloria Jr. And his father was also quite an important person, Vine Deloria Sr. And his father was a, one of the first Native uh, clergy um, in the Episcopal Church. And his father was a really quite important political leader and medicine man among the, among the Yankton Sioux people. So, um so there's a kind of family um, thing that has led me here in in some ways. But you know, as a as a kid growing up, I was a nerdy trombone player, and um, you know, and then I became a sort of nerdy guitar player. And then, because I was never that great a guitar player, I became a sort of um, bass player by default. And I started as a music performance major in college. Um, I realized I really didn't quite have the talent to make that stick. I became an education major. I taught two years of middle school band and orchestra um, while playing in bands. And um, uh, and then one one snowy night. Um, all the folks in the band that I was in at that time agreed to quit our jobs. And so I quit my very good job teaching middle school band and orchestra um, and, you know, headed out into the world. And that of course didn't last very long. I did a master's degree in broadcast journalism, which is where I did this documentary project. Um, and then, 
the person who was my, um, you know, one of my go-to advisors, Patricia Limerick at Colorado said, you know, you really ought to think about doing a PhD, which I hadn't really thought about at all. And before I knew it, I found myself at Yale doing American studies and then found myself back at the University of Colorado teaching in the same department as my dad. Um, and at one odd moment, we actually shared, shared an office together. You know, only over time did my teaching actually shift away from environmental which has sort of always been my bread and butter um, and towards Native American. Um, really in the last five years or so when I, was, when I was at Michigan did I start doing that. And then now here that I'm at Harvard, um, it is kind of my full-time, uh, you know, my full-time obsession. Wow, that's such a unique journey from music to education to broadcast journalism to finally Native American studies. And it's fascinating how your work in Indigenous studies is so deeply rooted in your Dakota heritage and your family's pioneering work in history, anthropology, art, and more. So now you're Harvard's first and unfortunately still only tenured professor in Native American history. Of course, your decision to join Harvard is fantastic for the university, but I'm sure you feel this way as well. It's also disappointing that Indigenous studies has been neglected for so long by Harvard and peer institutions. Since you teach an introductory course to Native American studies for undergrads, we were curious what aspects of Native American history you decided to highlight in creating this course, especially knowing that for a lot of your students, this is their first encounter with the field. Yeah, thanks for the question. It's really, um, it's really good and apt. I mean, I, so the course is a studies course rather than a history course. Um, and that means it's broken up into two halves. And the first half is really history. And the second half is really studies. And so for the second half, which we're just entering at this point in the semester, um, we just had a week talking about monuments and memorials and collective memory and native engagements and resistances in relation to those things. And now we move into, um, you know, music and literature and film and, uh, you know, art and, and food. I, I'm not sure if I'm doing food this time around since we're Zooming, but when we're in class, I make fry bread for the class. We have a big debate about whether it's a colonial, settler colonial food or not. Um, you know, so the studies part, um, we really are sort of thinking through um, what Elizabeth Cooklin calls indigenousness. And so the course really does begin with um, a, a kind of statement, a philosophical statement from Elizabeth Cooklin, a Crow Creek Dakota sort of scholar um, who says, we got to think about native studies in relation to, on the one hand, sovereignty and sovereignty histories and the politics of sovereignty. And on the other hand, indigenousness, this kind of core centrality um, that native people have and have always had and will carry forward into the future. So the studies part is a place for us to think about indigenousness. And the first part, the history part is a place for us to think more about sovereignty as it develops um, you know, over time in the context of the formation of the United States and um, its various policies. Um, you know, so when I'm talking about that, I actually have been sort of developing this little riff on the indigenous constitution, um, you know, which is basically the three-fifths clause, the commerce clause, and the supremacy clause, um, with maybe a few other things thrown in. And what's really interesting is when you go back to the constitution and sort of um, take that as the founding and governing document for the United States, but also imagine it as the founding and governing document for native people's relation to the United States, you can unspool all kinds of very interesting sort of histories of policy and legal cases and things like that. So I've tried to sort of use that as a way of um, moving through that history um, in productive kinds of ways, mostly centered on the dispossession of native lands. So you touched upon the politics of sovereignty and indigenousness. I'm wondering if you could give us like a couple examples of the key debates or questions that are asked in both of those topics. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because sovereignty is not an indigenous concept, right? It's a concept that's formed in Western philosophical and political kinds of traditions. And so it's a, you know, it's a position into which Native people have been placed. And yet, you know, as a number of scholars have argued, it's not as if Indigenous folks did not have sort of sense of their own political identities and autonomies and sense of their own collectivities, um, you know, and if you imagine a capacious definition of sovereignty, you can imagine sort of thinking the two terms together. Um, you know, for me, it's been really important to sort of, um, to go back to the three-fifths clause. You know, I usually ask classes and students, you know, how many folks know the three-fifths clause? And of course, everybody knows it because they've gotten it in AP history or whatever, and they know it in terms of the three-fifths part, three-fifths of all other persons. Um, and they usually have a pretty good understanding about it in terms of their proportional representation and things like that. And um, what, what many, many, many people miss, though, is the clause that comes before the words three-fifths, which is Indians not taxed. And that's uh, this very, very interesting moment, you know, um, rhetorically and constitutionally where Indian people are mentioned in the constitution in order to be excluded from the constitution. And usually when we think about exclusion from the constitution in terms of, you know, American politics, we think of it as a bad thing, right? But in fact, Native people are being excluded from the constitution in that moment because they are being seen as their own sovereign nations. And, you know, uh, when the 14th Amendment comes around, um, that same language is adopted. Three-fifths disappears, but Indians not taxed actually retains, you know, retains its power. So um, there is a sense, I think, over the long run of American history that Native people have been framed as being outside the United States and therefore in a treaty relationship with the United States in a separate kind of relation. Um, and, and once you start exploring that and then explore the ways that the United States has forced Native people to become part of the polity, you know, that tension is so interesting and so productive, I think, you know, um, for an engagement that leads us all the way up to the present, right, where we're confronting exactly these same kinds of issues. You know, Native nations are sovereign um, in relation to themselves and to the United States, and yet, of course, they are not fully sovereign. Um, you know, uh, the mechanisms and the workings of power, administrative power, and as we've seen, for example, at Standing Rock, even military power, um, those things force Native people into the governing polity of the United States. Yeah, you were describing this tension between the U.S. excluding Native Americans throughout its history, but then also trying to bring them in and subject them to the U.S.'s control. So where does the relationship between the U.S. government and Native Americans stand at the current moment? There's 574 federally recognized tribes um, right now. Lots and lots of state recognized tribes and lots of unrecognized tribes. Um, you know, um, and the relationship really, I mean, it, it goes back to, um, you know, the 1830s. It goes back to the 1790s, but, you know, now we're getting into like course content and boring pieces of legislation. But if you went back to the 1830s, there's this series of cases, the Cherokee cases. Um, and in one of them, Chief Justice John Marshall says, well, Indians are not really foreign, are they, as they were framed in the Constitution. Um, they are domestic dependent nations. So he says this, where they're domestic, um, that means they're internal, not foreign. They're dependent, that means they do depend upon the United States, and he frames it in that way. He uses language like they are pupils and we are teachers. They are wards and we are guardians. And what he's essentially sort of talking about is what we've come to call the trust relationship, which is that the United States... Um, 
by seizing Indian land, by uh, you know, sort of uh, depriving Native people of their subsistence, and then later by completely trying to destroy their cultures and languages, the logic of this that the United States has claimed is that they were guardians, right? That they had the best interest of Indians at heart, um, that they were trustees. And um, so other courts have then subsequently said, okay, fine. If you're gonna be trustees, you have to be a good trustee, right? You have to look out for the interests of native people and you have to honor certain obligations that were made um, you know, in the treaty process. So there's that interesting moment, right? Where the treaty process really does matter. The external kind of nature of native people matters, but what also then becomes internal are some of the, pro um, the promises made um, on the part of the United States government um, you know, to native nations. And so that trust responsibility sits alongside sovereignty you know, and if there's one great misconception, you know, that I hear sometimes just, you know, on an airplane or, you know, kids soccer game, that kind of stuff is, well, you know, if, if those Indians are sovereign, why do they want stuff from the government, you know, or the reverse of that, right? These Indians are getting all these services from the government. How can they possibly came to claim to be sovereign? Um, what's true about this situation is that both of those things are simultaneously correct. Right? that the federal government owes trust obligations to tribes and that tribes are also sovereign in relation um, you know, to the federal government. And developing that kind of uh, diplomatic relationship um, you know, uh, over the last you know, 70, 80 years has been incredibly, you know, incredibly challenging. So I'm wondering, there's been a lot of news in recent years about the U.S. government's relationship with Indian tribes. I'm sure most listeners have heard about the Trump administration's controversial push to construct the Keystone Pipeline through reservation land that belongs legally to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, or, you know, journalism related to the poor medical care provided by the Indian Health Bureau and things like that. So could you explain how you think about these current issues and maybe how they relate to this debate about sovereignty? One of the things that really sort of emerged around Standing Rock um, was the kind of consultation, right, that ought to take place between federal agencies and tribes, um, you know, was the consultation adequate? Um, did the federal government actually make provisions, you know, or was it sort of lip service and shallow and, and you know, not, um, not deep or significant? Um, you know, I, th I think if the election had turned out differently, there would have been a whole new conversation about consultation and the nature of that, um, you know, back in 2016, it of course didn't turn out, didn't turn out that way. So in any case, I mean, um, Indian Health Service, um, uh, Indian Education, uh, you know, all of these things are trust relationships and trust responsibilities that the federal government, you know, owes to tribes in which they've set up a governmental bureaucratic structure, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to provide those services. What's been really interesting since the 70s has been um, sort of the self-determination kind of policies where the government says, okay, we owe you these trust services and we will subcontract to you, the tribe, to provide the services to your own people. Um, and that's been a really interesting um, and capacity building, you know, kind of exercise. Um, it's not been uniformly great in every sort of aspect, but um, there've been a lot of really interesting things that have, you know, that have come out of that. So, um, one of the things that's been quite interesting over the last, you know, um, months for us, of course, has been COVID and COVID relief, the place of tribes in the CARES Act, you know, $8 billion set aside for tribes in the, in the CARES Act. I've had folks say, why should Indians get money, you know, out of the CARES Act? And in fact, a deep dive into this, usefully provided, I should say, by our Harvard colleague, Joe Kalt, 
um, over in the Kennedy School, emeritus now, but still doing a lot of great work, you know, has been the ways that, you know, Native economies are producing twice that. Yeah, definitely. I think what you said about the misconception that the U.S. government doesn't owe anything to Indian nations is really important to break down. Um, I'm sure most people don't know about the U.S. government's obligations that they've made to Indian tribes and how they should uphold them through this consultative process. Um, I wanted to move to a discussion about the books that you've written, perhaps starting with your first book, Playing Indian in 1998, which is about the white American tradition of mimicking stereotypes about Native Americans. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? You know, so the first book, Playing Indian, really unfolded in about 30 seconds in my head. I was a teaching fellow. I was sitting in a lecture, um, Bill Cronin's lecture. He put up a picture of these kids dressed up like Indians at the turn of the 20th century. This guy, Ernest Thompson Seton, used to sort of take kids out in the woods and dress them up like Indians. Guy next to me, Gunther Peck, turned and said, have you ever heard of this group called the Improved Order of Red Men, which was a fraternal society starting in the 1830s, and I had heard of them. Um, and then I thought about the Boston Tea Party, and then I thought about growing up in Boulder, Colorado, which is full of hippie New Asians who are all dressed up like Indians. And I thought, you know, dang, there's something that happens across the whole sweep of American history in which everybody dresses up like you know, uh, like Indians. And I thought, you know, there's something interesting about this dressing up and playing the performance of Indianness, um, And that's essentially the argument of the book, right? As that, um, you know, taking ideologies and beliefs about Indians and making them material by dressing up and performing this has been really central to thinking about how Americans have thought about themselves and thought about what it is to be American. You know, so the first part of that book says, you know, what happens during the American Revolution? How do you how do you stop being a British colonist and start being an American patriot and to the point where you're willing to have a revolution? And so part of the argument is that there's this transition to the settlers claiming a kind of indigenous identity through this sort of performance. So that book was 1998. And what's been really you know, interesting and fun and gratifying to me is that the sort of theorizations of settler colonialism started in like 2006 with Patrick Wolfe and folks. And Patrick and I had many, you know, sort of interesting exchanges over the, over the years, you know. Um, so in some ways, kind of what I was arguing was an early version of settler colonial theory, um, you know, in that, in that particular book. I see. So the connection to settler colonial theory is that by dressing up as Indians and claiming this indigenous identity, like you said, settlers are also in a sense claiming ownership of Native American land and resources. So while your first book focuses on the colonizers, your second book, Indians in Unexpected Places, takes a closer look at Native Americans and their culture. So in the second book, I really wanted to reverse the frame um, and sort of think about what are these ideologies that Americans hold about Indians? And I talked about them in terms of the word expectation. Um, and then how have Indian people sort of navigated, you know, within those expectations? Um, I wanted to give my students had fallen into a language of stereotype and bias. You know, they'd say, that's a biased thing. That, that's a stereotype. And then they would sort of look at me like I should give them a reward. And I would say, yeah, but that's actually not a very smart analysis. This doesn't really mean that much to say it's a stereotype, right? How, what kind of stereotype is it? How does it work? You know, how does it function in the world? These are the more interesting kinds of questions. So I wanted to offer a different language and a different vocabulary. And that was the language of expectation ideologies and discourses and stereotypes and things like that in a more sophisticated way. And then unexpected, unexpectedness, unexpectation, right? Um, the ways that Native people were constantly defying these kinds of expectations and playing with them, you know, as well. So, um, so it was really fun about that book, which came together in a totally different way over a long series of years and a set of essays was, you know, I just found a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of cool, right? You know, 
here's a whole bunch of pictures of Indian people driving cars. And then I came to realize that Native people were really early adopters of automobiles, particularly out in the West. Or you know, um, Native people in Hollywood, um, you know, in the early 20th century, or Native people like my grandfather participating in professional sports, um, or singing on the opera stage and the popular music kind of um, stage, or or being violent. This is actually one of the base essays in that book. Being violent after Americans had made this assumption that Indians were no longer violent, that they were pacified, that they were never going to fight back or resist. You know. Um, and 1890 is kind of the year when that happened. So, so those two books were, were sort of stand in some ways a little bit together. Part of the argument is about what it is to be modern. A lot of this stuff unfolds in the early 20th century. And there was an interesting kind of conversation at the time about whether you know, uh, modernity unfolded unevenly or whether there are alternative modernities. And part of my argument is like, mm, if we're gonna name something called modernity, let's just say there's one and let's say that native people are in it and they are fundamentally shaping forces you know within it so it's it's an argument about agency and um autonomy and cultural politics and and power and resistance on that note of native americans shaping modernity we wanted to ask more about your recent book becoming mary sully on how your great aunt mary sully has contributed to the american indian abstract artistic tradition and more broadly modernist art so the Mary Sully book is really, it's probably the best project I'll ever have. <laughs> it's like my career is going downhill from here. Um, you know, and that's because the archive is, of this art is so incredibly rich. So my great aunt, you know, I had two fascinating great aunts, uh, Ella Deloria, who's the more famous one, who's worked with Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead and was a Dakota language ethnographer and really quite an interesting and important person. But it turns out that Ella's sister was quite as brilliant as she was. And so her name is Susie Deloria, but she did her art under the name Mary Sully. Uh, she did that because, interestingly, her great-grandfather was Thomas Sully, who was this um, quite famous American portraitist in the early uh, 19th century. He's the guy who did the Andrew Jackson that's on the $20 bill. Um, and she was claiming a certain kind of artistic authority by drawing upon um, his name. But she was making art, you know, that came out of the Dakota women's uh, traditions of the Great Plains, um, quill work, beadwork, uh, uh, parflesh painting, these rawhide boxes, painting, quilting, those kinds of things. Um, but she was taking those things in a super cosmopolitan, modernist, New York City, you know, kind of way. The sisters lived in New York as Ella was working at Columbia. And so they were exposed to MoMA and um, various exhibitions and things like that. So they were quite aware of the place of Native arts within the kind of modernist frame. And the art that she created was, um, you know, so interesting, right? I mean, it veered away from the arts of the 30s, from social realism and you know, regionalism and things like that. And it, it looked back to the ab forms of abstraction um, that were being produced in the early, the aughts and the teens, um, which were sort of obsolete at that time. So she was really drawing on these older traditions in order to craft a kind of indigenous abstract kind of form of art. And then what's really, I think, quite important is that you know, I'm grabbing onto her, but there are many, many other artists, Native women artists, that are really quite important. This is the story of, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but the story of sort of Native abstraction, you know, coming out of the 50s and um, into the 60s and, and sort of Native primitivism coming out of the 30s out of Oklahoma and Santa Fe have really focused on men. Um, and I think if you take 
her as an anchor point or several other possible women, Angel Decora, Tonita Pena, folks like that, what you see is that there's a cohort of brilliant and creative Native women um, who are making cool and transitional and culture-based but modernist and cosmopolitan art, you know, from the early 20th century all the way up into the 1960s and, and beyond. Wow, it's crazy to me that there's this whole movement of Native American abstraction that so many people are unfamiliar with, but I'm glad that your book will help change that. We wanted to zoom out a bit and ask more generally about the Native American narrative. Just as a point of comparison, the African American story is taught to some degree in schools, and people are exposed to it at a young age. Of course, the education system often portrays the Black experience inaccurately and frames racial discrimination as a problem that's been solved, which is obviously not true. But the Native American narrative, in contrast, is barely told at all. Why is that? What makes society want to suppress the Indigenous experience rather than talk about it in some form? I think it's fundamentally challenging to the very existence, the epistemological existence of the United States. <laughs> um, you know, that the African-American narrative for all of its pain, when it is framed as a progressive sort of story, right, of the movement from slavery and degradation to freedom, to civil rights, given all of the sort of challenges, you know, to that, um, there is a sense in which that narrative can be subsumed into, right, the possibilities and the potentials you know, of the United States um, itself. The Native American narrative, I think, has a very, very much, uh, poses, poses much more significant challenges, you know, for doing that. Um, the African American narrative, the immigrant narrative, admit that there is one sovereignty on this continent. The Native American narrative does not admit that, you know. It insists constantly that that, that one sovereignty you know, came at the expense of other, other sovereignties. And those other sovereignties have not gone away. And because they've not gone away, you know, it does call into question, you know, the sort of place. How are you going to integrate those other sovereignties into the United States? Um, it's not easily done. You know, so I think this is one of the reasons why it's hard. Um, the African-American narrative has been, as you pointed out, has been simplified in so many ways. And those simplifications, right, um, you know, so often when we want to think about a hard problem, right, we construct it as an easy problem. <laughs> and that's what's happened, I think, you know, with, with in some ways with the African-American narrative. Um, and part of that finding the easier problem has been also the move away from the difficult problem of, of American Indian history and American Native, Native peoples sort of places here in North America that claims to be the United States, but which is actually something else. You're one of the few ethnic studies professors at Harvard, and since we've touched upon, you know, the commonalities and differences between the African-American and Native American histories and narratives, I'd like to ask you what you think the role ethnic studies plays in inter-ethnic and racial solidarity. Um, what should the relationship be between different branches of ethnic studies? My own sense is that the ethnic studies vision, right, was about connecting and comparing um, and using those kinds of things, um, you know, here's... Here's the Native experience. Here's the African-American experience. How are they different? How are they similar? You know, what lessons can we extract from making that comparison? How are they connected up, right? How do we talk about Native, uh, you know, anti-Black racism among Native people? How do we talk about Native slaveholding, right? How do we talk about those kinds of things? How do we talk about Indigenous enslavement, right? Because the story of slavery is also an Indigenous kind of story. You know, so how do we talk about those things in connected kind of forms? Those are two really important intellectual projects 
you know, and I think those kinds of things were the root of ethnic studies as a collaborative and collective kind of venture, you know, across these sort of social lines and divisions, you know, and in that sense, the academic and the intellectual work, right, of ethnic studies is, you know, one of the things which allows us to think about, you know, political solidarity within the present moment and political complication within the present moment. So, for me, that intellectual project is fundamentally central, you know, to thinking about how we do and don't do things right in the, you know, in the here and now. Following up on that, recently there's been a huge push from student activists for a greater ethnic studies presence at Harvard. In many ways, ethnic studies was really born out of protest, in that these programs aimed at challenging the existing Euro-American studies curricula in universities. What is your view on the relationship now between ethnic studies and activism? Because I think ethnic studies is more linked to activism than most other academic disciplines are. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, ethnic studies was born in activism. Um, you know, uh, interestingly, um, has always had ties to activism, but that activist moment, right, of 1969, um, you know, was somewhat attenuated, right, as folks moved into thinking, well, how do we actually build power within institutional structures, right? How do we build cohorts of grad students? How do we actually build fields? You know, how do we, um, you know, how do we move within these administrative, you know, kinds of structures? And that, I've done this, and it requires all of your time and energy, you know, and it is very frustrating. And, you know, so you have to have resilience, and you have to have creativity, and you, you know, I frankly have to have compromises, you know, um, at certain kinds of moments. So in some ways, the activist, you know, impulse, um, you know, is, it exists in a slightly different sort of sphere, right? Um, it is also about patience. It's also about organizing and all of these kinds of things. Um, it is about pushing the edge so that compromise um, is not so compromised, right? Um, you know, so, so these things are all completely tied together. Um, it is quite clear that in this particular moment, right, of a sort of racial reckoning for the United States, I, think, I would be hard pressed to think that this is not you know, a, a moment equivalent to 1969 in terms of the importance of ethnic studies and in terms of um, the relationship between organizing and activism and, um, you know, the building of these kinds of um, fields within our institutions. Yeah, I definitely hope that the current moment marks a revival and growth of ethnic studies as a discipline, like you said. Unfortunately, we've almost run out of time, but one last question to end on. Uh, what kind of legacy do you hope to leave at Harvard or in the field of Native American studies more broadly? Ah, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, it cuts to the heart of it, right? Why, why come to Harvard, you know, and do Native American studies when there doesn't seem to be Native American studies at Harvard? But the fact is, what's really interesting is there is Native American studies at Harvard. Um, you know, right after I got here, um, you know, Harvard went and hired my two wonderful colleagues from Michigan, Taya Miles and Joe Gon, um, hired Shawan Kinu over in the history of art, um, surfaced all kinds of interesting people, uh, Matt Liebman in archaeology, Dan Carpenter in politics, Ann Browdy in the Div School, David Carrasco, Joe Singer in the law school, Joe Kalt over in Kennedy School, um, probably missing some folks. Um, oh, there's a, there's a guy in the English department whose name I'm blanking on. I mean, it turns out, right, that, um, you know, if you added us all up, we could actually have a little department of Native American studies right here and now. And, you know, if there's anything that I could imagine as sort of, um, I don't see myself as a legacy person, right? People are not going to look back and say, oh, that was the guy who did X, Y, and Z. You know, I, humility, I think, is in order on these things, especially as we confront institutions. Like, 
I've never had an institution that didn't betray me in one way or another. It's just, it's not their fault. It's just what institutions do, you know? Um, but I think you could imagine a kind of moment, you know, 10 years from now where we could say, well, look, we've trained a number of grad students. Um, we have pulled together a number of initiatives. Um, we have developed a few programs. We um, have something of a curriculum up and running. Um, we have put uh, native and indigenous issues on the map in Harvard in ways that they haven't been since, oh, say 1650. Um, you know, those things would all be completely good and fine, you know, from my, my point of view. I, my, I always take a long view of institutions though, you know. There's the moment where you see a kind of department or a set of interests kind of rise and fall. Being part of a kind of a rise moment at Harvard, that'd be a decent legacy. I'd be happy enough with that. Thank you. That was both a nuanced and cautiously optimistic point of view. So we definitely appreciate that. And I know Sanjana and I are hoping in our last semester at Harvard to explore ethnic studies courses some more. All right, I think that's all we have. Thank you again for agreeing to join us on our podcast. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time.